Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. Every mission that loses its center eventually will spin off course. Um, we all know the kind of havoc that can happen in your car if the tire is out of balance a little bit. If, if, it doesn't, if, it, if the center, if it gets out of balance, the center gets messed up, eventually your, your car is kind of just... You know, it's kind of wobbling, your steering wheel's shaking, your watch, you hear your watch rattling, and then it gets a little worse, and then pretty soon you're, you can hear the road noise of your tires, and then you start, you get out and you look, and pretty soon, if it's left out of balance long enough, the tires begin to wear, and then if you keep going long enough, eventually the tires come off, and the whole thing is a, is a, is a major wreck. Every mission that loses its center, its balance off of the center of what it is, every mission that loses its center will eventually end up in a wreck. The same happens that in every mission, every purpose, when it loses its central focus. If there's a center of, of a mission to an organization and they begin to lose that central idea, that central mission, then they begin to, they begin to flounder and they get off of, they lose focus, they get off course. So we've been asking through this series, Missio Dei, what is God's purpose? Missio Dei, Latin for the mission of God. Uh, if you haven't been here and we've walked through what that, that, that's Missio, Latin for mission, Dei, God, the mission of God, what is God's mission. And through this series, we've been asking, what is God's purpose at this time? What is God up to? And I've been trying to press us into giving an honest answer to the question, 
Do you think God is done working at First Christian Church? Is God done working here? What do you think? Has, has the work been done? You know, we've got a nice building. We're pretty comfortable. Um, we, we show up. We, we, we all get along fairly well, you know. So is, is God just kind of done? And this we're all just kind of riding this thing out until we either go home to glory or Jesus shows up? Is that it? Is God done working at First Christian Church? And if not, which I, I hope you think he isn't, if you do, then let's maybe have a, a talk about that. But, but if, if you're here, I think that's evidence, which you are. And I, always, I keep saying that, and every time I realize you are here. Since you are here, I think that is a clear evidence that God is not done working. Because here we all are. God is still doing things in us and through us. And so since God is still working, what does he want to do here? What does that look like? If you can be convinced that God is not done working at First Christian Church, then, then we want to join in on the mission, on God's mission here. What does that look like? That's what we're trying to get to, the Missio Dei. And, and the reason why we're talking about the mission of God, we're making the argument that if you want to understand your mission in God's church, it's first most important to understand what is God's mission? What is he doing? If we want to understand what we should be doing, we need to first understand what it is that God has been doing. We're not trying to come up with some new sort of mission like we're going to do a think tank and all of us are going to sit around and think about, well, what do we think could be the next thing we're going to be? What's, what's the new exciting thing that we can, we can create, we can, we can cook up to have this, we're going to, this is going to be our new thing. We're going to be this kind of a church or whatever. We're not trying to cook up some new thing. We're trying to discover, rediscover, reattach ourselves to the central mission. What has God been doing all along? And if we want our mission to go forward according to God's plan, that it's going to be very important for us to remember and ground ourselves, what has God been doing all along? We flew through the Old Testament in two weeks. <laughs> we talked about Adam and Eve. We talked about Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David. We flew through about that quick in two, in two days, uh, two Sundays. We flew through God's movement through all of these Old Testament figures, what the judges, the kings, and the prophets, all of them were working towards. But this morning, we're jumping into the New Testament already. God has been silent after the, the final Old Testament prophet. God was silent for 400 years God was not speaking. If you read the apocryphal books, they, they make reference to that reality that they're, they're making decisions. They're saying, well, let's, it seems wise to us to do this, but because we, because we aren't hearing from God, basically we don't know what to do. So since God isn't speaking, let's just do this. And there's a, there's a realization from them that God has gone silent for 400 years. And then John the Baptist shows up and he begins to point forward to the coming of Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, the, he's on his way. The Lord, God's, the, the Savior is on his way. So what does it mean then when Jesus shows up for God's mission? Gone all through the Old Testament. What does it mean now that Jesus is showing up? For some people, they think Jesus is the change in God's mission. And this is, often, this is often portrayed this way, that like first in the Old Testament, we got angry God. 
We've got mean grandpa God or like cranky grandpa God who just wants to get wrath and, and, and punish everyone. And then what comes along? Jesus shows up and he talks grumpy God down off the ledge and placates him so he won't destroy us. And so there's been this plan in the Old Testament of angry God and then Jesus shows up and all of a sudden he turns angry God into, into he, he talks him out of being so angry and now he's got, we have nice God. But is that really what happened? Is there a change in God's plan? Biblically, no. There's no change in God's plan. Not at all. Some may claim that, but if we follow this storyline through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see how God has been working in one direction the whole time and that Jesus is actually the working out, the manifesting, the fulfilling of that plan that God has always been accomplishing. He's not a change in the plan. He's the fulfillment of the plan. He is working that plan out in real time and history. All along, we've been saying these uh, through this series, that God's mission is to secure for himself a people who will glorify him and enjoy him. God has been working for a people who will glorify him and enjoy him and then spread that glorifying of him and that enjoyment of him across the ends of the earth. Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply is the first command they are given to go and to multiply. And then we, we work on down the line, seeing that with Noah and all along that the, the Abrahamic covenant is to be a blessing to all the nations that there is this multiplication that is going to be happening as part of the plan of God. God being glorified because he has a people for himself. That are, and, and God being glorified because this people that is his, they are enjoying him. And it is multiplying God's glory and their enjoyment in it and multiplying the spread out into the world. Christ does not come along and change God's mind. He completes it. Christ is the centerpiece of God's glory and the opening of God's joy for his people. Christ is the centerpiece. He's not the change in God's plan. He's the centerpiece. He's the hub. He is the centerpiece of God's glory and of the opening of God's joy for his people. So we're looking at that by, by just taking a few minutes to look in this Colossians chapter 1 passage. This is considered likely an early hymn of the early church that they possibly had this, they might have sung this in some way, but it's a very poetic um, section of Scripture here that Paul is writing down of this preeminence of Christ, the, 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 the centrality, the importance, the, the, the high place Christ is given in the church. It tells us about the nature of Jesus, the one through whom everything was made, and the one who also holds all things together. We can be confident that Jesus is not a change in God's plan because Jesus was there at the beginning. He's the one through whom all things were made. It wasn't like God all of a sudden after he gets halfway through the Old Testament, we've got to do something about this problem. Let's, uh, let's, let's make Jesus or let's uh, raise Jesus up and then send him down. It's part of the plan all along, Christ was there in the beginning of creation. John 1, 1 tells us that all things were made through him. That, that Christ was there in the beginning. 
He is God in the second member, in his own personhood. He is a fully God in the same way that God the Father is. Jesus was there at creation. This is not a change in God's plan. This is a working out, the fulfilling of his plan. What's the plan? To secure for himself a people who glorify him and enjoy him. Okay, that's the plan. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God because in him, as Colossians tells us, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. That there we can look and see the clearest revelation of God because in Christ, the fullness of God dwells. But then how? So, okay, if we're saying God's plan Purpose is to secure a people for himself who glorify him and enjoy him. How is Jesus the fulfillment of that purpose? If, if that's what I'm trying to put forward, and I am, then how does he secure a people who will glorify God and enjoy him supremely and then therefore multiply glorifiers and enjoyers? To see how Jesus is the centerpiece of our glorifying God and enjoying him, we have to first see the problem. We have to first see the problem. God is a holy and just God. And we saw that at the fall of Adam and Eve, right? All of mankind, you can look at Romans chapter 6, we just read a few weeks ago here on Sunday morning, that because of that first sin, sin spread to all men, and therefore all sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. That there's this reality of a holy and just God and a sinful people who have fallen, have transgressed, who are not in right standing with God. In fact, righteousness demands that there must be a punishment for unrighteousness. There must be punishment for sin. If there is transgression, if we have wronged, if we have gone against God, if we have rebelled, if we have sinned, and the biblical argument is, yes, Every one of you in this room this morning has transgressed against God's holy law. If there is transgression, then God's justice demands and justice demands that there must be punishment. Do you see the problem that's getting created here? If God is holy and just and righteous and perfect and we are a sinful creation, how is God going to have for himself a people who will glorify him and enjoy him? The only way they can glorify him in, in this present state as they are is to put the judgment upon them. God could be glorified in their punishing of them because he remains holy. He remains righteous. He remains just. He remains good because of this sinful, this sinful people who have transgressed, they receive their punishment. God could be glorified in that. But God's purpose is not just his glory. It's, that it's, it's, a, it's securing a people for himself who will glorify him and enjoy. There's no enjoyment in being punished for your sins. So the, God has to do something. There's, there's tension here. What's going to happen so that God can make for himself, as we've seen in Adam and Eve and Noah and Moses and Abraham, David, Jacob, Isaac, all of these figures, how is he going to secure a people for himself who are going to glorify him and enjoy him? That's what's revealed to us in chapter 1, verse 21 of the book of Colossians. It says, and if you think, well, Darren, you're really pushing that, you, that we were separated from God. Well, read the text, Colossians 1, 21. And you who once were alienated 
hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, separated from God. That was the state which we are in by our natural state. He, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body, this is of Jesus, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The, what's going to happen here, Christ has now reconciled through his body of flesh by death. In the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see God and his glory, he's God's glorification. We see God glorified by his justice remaining because he has punished. An atoning sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice has stood into the place of sinners. Jesus Christ has offered up his life as a sacrifice for the sin of man so that we can see in the life of Christ, God's glory is upheld. He's a just God because he has punished sin in Christ. So the punishment has been dealt out. But we also see the enjoyment of the securing of the people for the enjoyment of God because as he deals out his justice upon his son, all of those looking to Christ, repenting, confessing themselves as sinners, trusting in Christ's work for themselves, that his death was their death, his life is their life, they are forgiven, they are reconciled, they are presented now holy and blameless before God. So that this antagonism, this hatred, this enmity between the holy and righteous God and unrighteous people is now connected through Christ has shown up. God and his plan to secure a people for himself who will glorify him and enjoy him is centered around the reality of what Christ has done in his life, death, resurrection, ascension into heaven. This is what Christ has done. He is the center of this plan. We've been made righteous through the work of Christ by our repentance and faith in Christ. A people can now stand blameless and righteous before this God. We have no right to. We have no way to get there on our own. We have no way. Once we have become stained with this sin, there is no amount of washing on our own that can get this removed. But what Christ has done in the giving of his righteousness, we can now be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God, not blameless and righteous by any of your own works, but by the faith in, in the righteous faith in the righteous work of another. Something from outside of us has happened to secure us. All of the plan and purpose of God hinges on and centers around the blazing reality of Christ and His work. If you remove Christ. And his atoning death. If you remove the justice and mercy of God seen in the giving of his son as a sacrifice for sin. If you abandon that, you have no hope of finding yourself lined up with the purposes of God. Christ, his death, his life, his resurrection is the centerpiece of God's plan. So if we're talking about the Missio Dei and we're wanting to say, okay, how does First Christian Church make sure we're on track with God and His mission and our mission? We have 
to make sure that Christ is the center of our mission in the same way that God has Christ as the centerpiece of his mission. You may have thousands of shortcomings. We may have all kinds of, of, of areas we need to work on around the peripheral. But if we have Christ at the center, if you have the reality of the gospel message, salvation through repentance and faith in the work of Christ, you're far closer to the purposes of God than those doing thousands of what we would call good things on the outside, but have no real heart for Christ. They're totally devoid of the message of the gospel. For instance, you can clothe and feed thousands of people. You can provide love and support across the globe. But if you're not telling them of the eternal salvation, the good news of an eternal salvation through Jesus Christ that can be theirs, you're not on God's mission. God's mission is to secure himself a people who glorify him, enjoy him. And the centerpiece of that mission is reconciling people through his son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. You can do thousands of what the world would call good things. But if Jesus isn't in it, it isn't part of God's mission. You can have language completely full of God talk. We see this all over the world. Uh, and even our local community, lots of God talk. Talking about God in all sorts of ways. You can spend all kinds of time in prayers and prayer walks, labyrinths, all sorts of um, ways to pray, meditations. And if the atoning work of Christ is not at the center, you're not walking with God and his mission in the world. You can be the most affirming and comforting and pleasant individual that anyone could ever dream to be around. And if you don't have Jesus, his call to repent and to trust in his work, you are not walking with God and his mission in the world. His plan and his purpose is to secure for himself a people who are multiplying glory givers and enjoyment livers. <laughs> his goal is to multiply glory givers and enjoyment livers, not livers like your liver. That's a terrible question. I shouldn't say that. It's confusing. Uh, but this is his point. And if Christ, God is doing this through Christ and Christ alone. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Christ and his work on the cross is the centerpiece of God's mission. He is the hub of, his, of God's plan in the world. It's shocking, but you can, you can listen to a lot of sermons and general church talk around the world today and even in our community and hear next to nothing really about Jesus and his work to save sinners. Jesus and his work. We hear a lot of talk about Christ Jesus, and we hear a lot of talk about Jesus maybe and his example about how we should live. But often, as Michael Horton says, we hear churches making much of the Christian and little of the Christ. That our whole organizations can become about what the Christian must do instead of gathering to rejoice in what the Christ has done. And if you lose that center of the mission, you have no hope at walking with God and his mission in the world. May that not be the reality here. That's why I spent a whole another 30 minutes this morning talking about this central reality of Christ and his work on the cross. Hopefully this leads us to ask, is Jesus the center 
of First Christian Church and not Jesus in the way of a great moral teacher. Jesus in the way of, of you know, this is the kind of nice Vidal Sassoon, pleasant Jesus, but no, the, the work of Christ. What he has done outside of you for you. Not what you do to be more like Jesus. What Jesus has done to save you from your sins as this one who is separated from God, unholy, full of reproach, full of blame. Christ has come, offered on his own body on the cross so that every one of you in this room this morning, confessing your sins, trusting in Christ, can be presented now holy and blameless and above reproach before him through the work of Christ. Is that Jesus, is that gospel the center of what we're doing here? And further, is that reality the center of who you are? Is that the center of your life? Here's a diagnostic question to ask you. When was the last time you knew Jesus' position on something and you listened to him instead of your own desire? When was the last time Jesus really got the say over your life where everything in you was wanting to do X, Y, Z, but you knew that the command of Christ, the desire of Christ, the will of God for you was not that. When does Jesus win in your life? Does that ever happen? Does that ever happen in your life? Do you ever honestly repent? Do we ever get a no from God and listen? When we think about the mission, in God's mission in this world and in us in 2019 at Mount Air First Christian Church, if Jesus isn't at the center and driving what we do, we have no hope of joining God on his mission in the world. Does Jesus, does that gospel message get the say in what happens here? If he doesn't, we have no hope of being aligned with the Missio Dei. Christ is the centerpiece of God's purposes. I hope at some point when you're getting ready to come to church or when someone asks, what, asks around you, know, what goes on at this church? You answer reflex, reflexively, just as a matter of reflex. Well, no matter what's going on, it's gonna center around Jesus. And I, and I know that there's, I, I can imagine the, the scenario, the, the way this works out, the timeline of a person's life. Well, go to church, Darren's gonna talk about Jesus again. He's gonna talk about the reality that we're all estranged from God and our in our uh, sinful self, in our natural state, we're estranged from God. I know he's going to talk about that Christ came to pay for our sins and live the righteous life we should have lived, die the death that we deserve, so that through repentance and faith in Christ, we could be reconciled to God, adopted into his family, and have eternal joy in him alone. I know he's going to say that at some point. And to be honest with you, I, that's great. I hope, because I want that to be the reflex. What we're going to talk about until you kick me out or whatever happens if I'm up here, what we're going to talk about is what Christ has done. It is the centerpiece of God's mission. It should be the centerpiece of all of our lives. And I'm hoping the day comes when somebody asks you what, what Darren's going to talk about. You don't say reflexively, well, it's going to be these certain things. It's going to be, you, you're going to know and have the joy and be excited about, I'm going to hear again the reality that though I don't deserve to be called a child of God, Though I am a child of wrath by nature, Christ has rescued me. And I know that I'm going to show up and we're going to hopefully be encouraged into worship over what Christ has done for me and for his church. What God has done to secure himself a people 
who will glorify him and enjoy him. And will then, as they lift that up, will then multiply out and grow and multiply into more who glorify him and enjoy him. So that's why we keep communion at the end of every Sunday service. This is our chance, a tangible way to center yourself on the reality of Christ. This is a meal that is approached with repentance. This is not center around you and your goodness. It centers around Christ, his goodness, an alien righteousness, an act done for you, not by you, but done for you. It's not center around you and your goodness, but instead it centers around Christ and your need for his goodness. This morning, if you're convicted over your lack of Christ-centeredness, if you feel some, some just moat, some bit of conviction, areas of my life that, you know, I, I, I am, this is not the center of who I am. I'm revolving around myself or around thousands of other things. Communion is your moment to confess that, to come before God and say, Father, I repent. I, I, I have, your mission has not been my mission. I've been pushing for things that weren't things that you were pushing for. I come this morning to repent. This is your moment to turn from self-worship and to turn truly to Christ. Because in the life, death, resurrection, the spilling of Christ's blood, the breaking of his body, there is forgiveness for sin, reconciliation, that we might, as Colossians says, be presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Let's pray. Father, do this work in our hearts in this place this morning. I pray, Father, for honest conviction in every heart, my own heart, every heart in this place this morning, God. We can't read Romans 7 and the confessions of Paul and his struggle against his fleshly self and pretend like there aren't parts of us that we still reserve to be centered around ourselves and our purpose and our mission and have no interest in yours. Father, convict us in this place this morning. And I pray that we would, be, we would face those things boldly because we know that there is a throne of grace big enough for all of our sin. And we bring it to you, God, confessing it, looking to Christ, trusting in him, confident that you are the God who keeps his promises to forgive those who come to you in faith. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.